All right, morning, everyone. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke 15. Stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Good to see all of you. We are working our way through the parable of the prodigal son. We'll start at verse 11 for context. We'll make it through verse 20 this morning. Uh, And he said there was a man who had two sons. Verse 12, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You may be seated. Father, we see repentance as such an important part of the Christian life, or at least I I hope that's the case. If not, I pray that it would uh, bear witness to each person here how important repentance is. And and it's really ongoing for us as Christians. Uh, As we were somewhat discussing in Sunday school this morning, we continue to see areas of our lives that need to be given over to you. And they're given over through repentance, Lord. And so I pray as we look at one of the premier examples of repentance in all of Scripture this morning through the life of the prodigal son, that you would help us to find application for our lives and that repentance would be an an ongoing feature for us as we're more conformed into the image and likeness of Christ, uh, as those parts of us that that are incompatible with him are removed. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would continue to convict us, and by the work of the gospel uh, in our lives, we would have the power and ability to overcome the sin, not something we could ever do in our own effort, but through your help, uh, as you continue that sanctifying work, is able to be accomplished, Lord. So bless this time we have this morning. Help us to learn the wonderful truths that you have contained here through the Son's example. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of this morning's sermon is, What Does Repentance Look Like? This chapter contains three parables. And does anyone remember the two themes of these parables? If not, it's been some weeks or maybe even months since I shared what the themes are. What are the two themes of these three parables? The two themes that all three parables have in common. Okay, it's been a little while. That's fine. They're about repentance and joy. Themes of both or all three parables are repentance and joy. And this third parable does something interesting that the other two parables don't. The word joy and repents or repentance comes up repeatedly in the first two parables but is absent from the third parable in other words instead of telling us that the someone experienced joy or that there was joy or that someone repented instead of using those words we end up seeing these two behaviors take place so we're not going to see the words repent and joy but instead we get to see repentance and joy demonstrated by the individuals in the account So the son is never said to repent, but we get to see him repent. The father is never said to be joyful, but we get to watch him rejoice over his son's repentance. I'm going to try to draw out many of the wonderful lessons 
we can learn about repentance and hopefully apply to our lives as we consider this uh, incredible example in scripture so look with me at verse 18 the son says i will arise and go to my father and i will say to him father i have sinned against heaven and before you and then notice these words i will set out and go back to my father and this brings us to lesson one genuine repentance lesson one seeks to return to the father genuine repentance seeks to return to the father now up to this point it seems like the son had pretty much went just about everywhere else he could things had gotten so bad for him and he had become so desperate he was even willing to um, hire himself out to a gentile and then begin serving that gentile for money by feeding that individual's pigs finally he reaches the point that he's willing to go back to his father now considering and that shows you just how uh, you know he'd been so desperate that it appears to me that there weren't really any other avenues that he could have pursued but he finally reaches this very low point in his life where he's willing to return to his father now considering the father in the account is a picture or a type of our heavenly father this is a great example of what should happen in our lives so we're like the sun we're desperate uh, perhaps vulnerable we're pursuing different avenues or solutions in life before finally turning back to god we try everything else and how does it go it goes very poorly for us there's a sense in which we might feel like we're just out there um, you know feeding pigs or serving gentiles <laughs> our lives are terrible but finally reach the point that we would say these same beautiful words that the son said at this low point in his life i will arise and i will go to my father and this is how repentance begins there can't really be genuine repentance in a person's life without something very similar to this or some desire to return to the lord interestingly the son did not talk about returning to his home or to his village which are two places that he was going to return when he repented instead his focus was on returning to his father and i see a parallel for us our focus should be on returning to the lord now when we repent it is frequently going to bring us back to our church like the son ended up going back to his home or it's going to bring us back to our church family like the prodigal son did end up going back to his family but the focus should still be on returning to the lord like it was for him returning to his father lesson two genuine repentance lesson two takes responsibility genuine repentance takes responsibility notice the words i have he took responsibility for what he did so it's pretty wonderful to consider what we see from the sun and what we don't see from the sun and so we don't see any justifying we don't see any any vacillating there's no minimizing there's no rationalizing there's no blame shifting you can tell from later in the count that he grew up with another brother who was pretty self-righteous but he doesn't talk about having been mistreated by that brother uh, earlier in life and so that's why he ran away from home he grew up with a godly father but you don't see any blame shifting here that his if his father hadn't been so strict with him or had he been able to have a little bit more fun throughout his life then he wouldn't have had to take off like this there's no excuses he didn't talk about how he never really intended to waste his family's inheritance he'd been given this money and he wanted to be a good steward of it but there just ended up being this terrible famine and everyone in the land is losing money so it wasn't really his fault 
He didn't talk about being a weak man. He didn't talk about the flesh that he was given. And so really this is Adam's fault. It, you know, I behave this way because as his descendant, um, I receive this sinful nature and all of us give ourselves over to it at some point. So there's none of that. No blame shifting, no excusing, no justifying. And notice his confession is only a few words. Now, considering how rebellious he was and how much the parable does not go into uh, great length regarding the immorality that he engaged in, we do get a little bit of uh, window or insight into it that he'd, he'd, he'd been pretty sexually immoral, it seems, and he'd engaged in a uh, very debauched lifestyle. Uh, considering all that, it is a surprisingly short and concise confession from him. And what this tells me is that confessions can be short and they can be concise as long as they're what? Yeah, as long as they're honest, sincere, genuine, born out of contrite uh, hearts that are broken over the sin that has been committed. They don't need to be really drawn out and, and long to take responsibility. If I asked you for the other very prominent confession in Scripture, I'm guessing toward the top of that list or perhaps the um, first guess you, you might share with me would be David, following his sins of adultery and uh, adultery with uh, Bathsheba and then murder, murdering her husband Uriah. And what did David's confession sound like? It was short. It was a few words. It was after Nathan confronted him, I'll just read it to you. Second Samuel twelve thirteen. I mean, you remember the, the uh, confrontation where Nathan comes to him, convinces him that he is the man that Nathan was talking about in the story that David had declared should have been killed because of the sin he engaged in. And in this very broken moment, this is what it says. Second Samuel twelve thirteen. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's it. Just those words from him. And then you wonder, was it good enough? Or was it long enough? Should he have said more? I mean, considering what David did, we might wish his confession was longer. But in response, Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. So apparently it was a sufficient confession. Because repentance is not something that takes place outwardly, it's something that takes place inwardly. It's not about how many words are spoken, it's about what is felt in the heart during that time. Now if you contrast... The prodigal son's short confession and David's short confession with another individual who was terrible at confessions, and that's Saul, you'll notice that his confessions, and I use the word confession loosely, were particularly long and drawn out. Lots of words whenever Saul was confessing his sin. And again, I'm using the word confessing loosely. So he offers a sacrifice that he shouldn't have offered. Remember, Samuel says, I'll return on the seventh day. I will offer this sacrifice. Saul panics. He offers it. And Samuel confronts Saul. And then listen to this. Second Samuel 13, 11, Saul said, now, now just pause for a second, but what could Saul have said when he was confronted by Samuel? I have sinned. And it would have been way better than everything you're about to hear. 1 Samuel 13, 11, Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines are going to come down against me at Gilgal. I have not offered the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. That's actually what it says. I forced myself. Like he really didn't want to do it. He had to do it. And I offered the burnt offering. 
I mean, he managed to blame the Philistines. He managed to blame the people of Israel. He managed to blame uh, Samuel for not coming on time. And they're pretty much, if you suspect if there was anyone else he could have blamed, he would have blamed them too. When Saul was confronted after failing to wipe out all the Amalekites, 1 Samuel 15, 15, Saul said, well, they, the people, have brought them from the Amalekites, all the possessions and wealth and sheep and oxen. The people are the ones who spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we've devoted to the destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. Samuel tells him to stop because it's almost like Samuel what? He just couldn't put up with it any longer. He couldn't listen to Saul going on and on with all, all these excuses. And, and really, when there's a lot of words, it can turn a confession into an excuse. It would be better to just say, I sinned, I did this, I was wrong, I'm sorry, versus some long, drawn-out explanation that might sound like a confession, but is really just an excuse disguising itself. The next lesson, genuine repentance, you know, uh, Pastor Nathan, he joked with me and he looked at the, the lessons. He said, you've got seven lessons. Should this be like two sermons? So we will go through them uh, pretty quickly. You will have time still to go to camp. <laughs> Lesson three, genuine repentance uses the word sin. Genuine repentance uses the word sin. Now, I want to get you to think about something for a moment. I just want you to be aware of this, if you aren't already, so that you can keep an eye on this and resist this very strong influence from our culture. The world has been doing an incredible job of removing the word sin from our vernacular. And there are three ways that the world is doing this. First, the world makes everything relative. So even when someone commits a sin... It's not really a sin, and by relative, I just mean it can be explained. It it can be justified. And so even when someone does something wrong, it is done for a good reason, or it's not not really wrong because it's, it's not wrong in the person's eyes, or it's wrong in your eyes, but there's this very subjective sliding scale of truth and morality and righteousness and unrighteousness. And so even when when people do something, it's never going to be called a sin because there are all these reasons or background to it that, you know, as a Christian, you're just not familiar with and you don't understand why the person did it and you shouldn't be so unloving and condemn them. And sure, it looks bad to you, but for them, it looked good. And so nothing's really a sin. The second way that the world is removing the word sin is by providing alternative words because the word sin or the sin itself sounds bad. And I'll just give you a few examples. If you're using a computer and you're having problems, you can abort a program, right? If you're ever watching a movie and things go south for the heroes, they can abort the mission, right? That's what it means to abort something. But if you remove a living baby from a mother's womb, that is not an abortion. That's what? But we don't want to say murder because of how bad that sounds or the revelation of the wickedness of what's happening. And so instead, we're going to say that this person had an abortion. An affair. An affair is an event. Uh, An affair is a situation. And so you could say it was a very troubling affair to me. Or if you went through a trial, you could say it was a really difficult affair. But if a married person has a relationship with someone that is not their spouse, 
that is not an affair. That's what? Adultery or sexual immorality, but you're just not going to hear that. We want to say things like this. I had the worst time in school trying to convince parents when their children lied. It's just acceptable or customary for students to lie. And it's interesting because I became a Christian during my time as a school teacher, and so there was a dramatic change when I began to appreciate things the way that God saw, views them. And so it's sad, but when I began as a teacher as a non-Christian, and I'm ashamed that this was the case, I would applaud students if their excuses, which is really code for lies, for not doing their homework were comical or good enough. And so when students did not do the work that they were supposed to do, if they had a lavish or extravagant or exaggerated enough excuse or believable, then I would joke with them about how funny it was. And then I become a Christian and I recognize, no, God doesn't think lying is funny. The devil is the father of lies. Liars have their place in the lake of fire. You start reading verses like that, and then you start realizing it's not a good thing for students to be joking or lying. Well, then you're trying to confront students about lying, and you let their parents know that the student lied in class, and you just cannot get parents to admit their child lied. They're going to tell you, well, no, he didn't lie. He just exaggerated a little bit. Or she didn't lie, she just left out some of the details. Or they weren't really lying, they just kind of stretched the truth a little bit. But it's like the lie, it's almost like a swear word, and you just can't get it to come out of someone's mouth. People of the same sex have relationships with each other. We're not going to say that they're homosexuals or sodomites, but those are the biblical words. Instead, we're gonna, now we're even adding other words. It used to be gay. That's a word we've lost. You can't, I say the, it almost sounds like a bad word to say the word gay. It did not used to be a bad word. It used to mean happy. We've lost that word, and now we're adding other words. Now there's, there's queer, or there's some acronym that we're continually adding letters to to make sure that that's a long enough description to cover. I don't even, to be honest, I don't even understand what it all means. I don't even know what all the letters are. I don't know what they represent. I just know that we keep adding letters to them, and we're ending up with these absurd um, acronyms. But the point is that you're going to hear that gay, queer, that acronym, but you are not going to hear homosexual. You are not going to hear sodomite. If a politician was asked to discuss what marriage is and isn't, and he used one of those words, I can only imagine the backlash. So my point is the world is removing the word sin. And what does it have to do with this account? To the prodigal son's credit, what word did he use? He used the word sin. He said, I have sinned. And this is important because when the world is doing its very best to prevent us from calling anything a sin, it is going to be even easier for us to avoid calling something a sin. And I think I forgot. Didn't I tell you, I told you there's three reasons, didn't I? I forgot one of the reasons. I gave you two reasons. One reason is that the word sin is removed. Everything's justifiable. The other word is we have all these alternatives for sin. And then the third reason, and I'm glad that I, I didn't forget this or I caught it, caught it in my notes and I'd glanced over it, is sins are now being called diseases. So drunkenness has destroyed countless relationships. It has been a sin in my family and in Katie's family that has caused uh, immense hurt. It, it breaks relationships. It, it destroys families. It, it ruins lives. And now this sin of drunkenness is alcoholism, which is a 
disease. And you really shouldn't even say alcoholism or alcoholic. You should say drunk. Those are the biblical words. Pedophilia, an incredibly perverse sin, punishable by death, which is now being called what? A disease that people have. Why would people want to say something is a disease versus a sin? Because you can't help when you get a disease. You feel bad for people to have a disease. When someone comes and tells you that they have a disease, you apologize or empathize with them and say that I'm so sorry that you have this disease. There's nothing you could have done to cause that or acquire it. You're just very unfortunate that this was brought into your life. And that's the response the world wants us to have toward people when they sin. And so if we're living in a world that is going to be treating sin this way, it is going to become increasingly difficult for us, or let me say it like this, it's actually going to become increasingly easier for us as Christians not to identify something as sin. But if we want to be genuinely repentant and we want to grow in our relationships with the Lord, then we need to be very comfortable identifying something as sin and saying, I have sinned. J. Edwin Orr, he tells the story about a woman who stood up in church to make a confession. And here's how it goes. The woman stands up and she says, please pray for me. I need to love people more. The pastor said, that is not a confession, sister. Anyone could have said that. Then she said, I should have said my tongue has caused a lot of trouble in this church. And then the pastor said, now you're talking. It's very easy to say things like, I'm not everything I should be, I wish I was a better Christian, I hope that I can be more spiritually mature in the future, pretty much things that everyone can say. It's a lot harder to say, I have lied, or I have gossiped, or I have been bitter, or I have not forgiven like I should, or I have exhibited ungodly or sinful anger. And genuine repentance involves a confession that uses the word sin and identifies things as such. The next lesson, genuine repentance lesson four, knows the sin is against God. And this is what Jack was mentioning earlier that David also did. Genuine repentance knows the sin is against God. Let me back up a little bit for this lesson. It's fitting for the son to say that he sinned, and this is, a, this is an important distinction. I love the, the accurate theology uh, with the son in this parable. Did the, Now, just look at the verse before you answer this. Did the son say he sinned against his father? He didn't. He did not say he sinned against his father because Jesus is telling this parable and Jesus' theology is right. <laughs> he did not sin against his father. He sinned before his father, which is to say his father was aware of his sin, and, but his sin was against heaven, or against God himself. Now let's just back up for a moment, because it was still appropriate for him to say that he sinned before his father, because the Bible, in particular Proverbs, tells us that the way that a son acts affects the father and affects the mother, but we'll just stick with the father to make this a little shorter. Proverbs, in particular, tells us that the way that a son behaves affects a father. What verse comes to mind? from Proverbs, a wise son makes a glad father. Proverbs 10.1, Proverbs 15.20, Proverbs 23.15, my son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. And a son's sin can grieve his father. Proverbs 10.5, he who sleeps in harvest 
is a son who brings shame. Proverbs 28, 7, a companion of gluttons shames his father. So it was appropriate for the son to discuss the way that his sin had affected his father, and similarly, the way that this son's sin affected his earthly father and the way our sin affects our earthly father, our sin is also against our heavenly father. It is against his ways, his character, his commands. Great men in the Bible recognize this truth, and I'll give you two of them. First, take your minds to Joseph, and when he had been exalted to the position, the way Joseph talks, he, he wasn't even second in Potiphar's house. He seemed to be equal with Potiphar. Just listen to the way he words this when Potiphar's wife starts uh, throwing herself at him. Genesis 39, verse 8. Joseph said to Potiphar's wife, Behold, because of my master, this woman's husband, who has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that is, he has in my charge. And then he, Joseph even said this, He is not greater in this house than I am, which is why Joseph basically said that Potiphar made Joseph equal to him. He has not... He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you. You're the only thing. Joseph says, the only thing in Potiphar's house that I don't have access to is you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against? And pause right here. Because everything Joseph's been saying has been about how good Potiphar has been to him. When he says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against, what would you expect him to say? Potiphar, listen to this. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph understood that no matter how much good Potiphar had done for him, which Joseph probably was able to look past Potiphar and see God doing for him, that to commit this sexual sin with Potiphar's wife would be nothing less than sinning against God. David, in his great psalm of repentance, after confessing his sin, Psalm 51, 3, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. And then he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And that is that has always been a very surprising statement to me. I can understand why David said, against you have I sinned, but to say against you, you only, as though he didn't sin against anyone else, when it looked like David sinned against a whole bunch of people. It looks like he sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, Eliam, Ahithophel, Do you remember how many men died in the battle to cover David's sin as part of the conspiracy between David and Joab? And David didn't sin against all those people that assaulted the wall so that Uriah could be killed? But David said his sin was only against God. Now, even though it looks to us like the prodigal son's sin was against too, if you remember Toward the beginning of this parable, how should the father have responded? He should have announced the son was dead, slapped him across the face, had a, a funeral to communicate that the son was dead to the family and to everyone else. In other words, it definitely looked like the son sinned against his father, and he said, my sin was before you. In other words, you're aware of it. 
but it was against heaven, which is to say against God. And I'll give you two things to take away from this. First, we just want to remember, because we could do this. We could be tempted to mistreat someone or do something cruel or sinful to someone and tell ourselves that we're just doing it to that person. But we need to remember first that ultimately we're doing it against God. And then second, that I hope can encourage you like it has encouraged me, when it looks like people sin against us, they never have. Nobody has ever sinned against you. That encourages me because it helps me with two of my weaknesses, forgiveness and bitterness, to remember that nobody... Have your, have your commands ever been violated? Has anyone ever broken your law? Have you died for someone or has your son died for someone and then that person sinned against you? Nobody's ever sinned against you. People have always only ever sinned against God. And that is a really good thing to remember so we don't think too highly of ourselves and how we've been mistreated and all the cruel things that have happened to us. This causes us or allows us to be more forgiving and gracious and have bitterness removed from our hearts easier to, to uh, struggles of mine. Look at verse 19. He says, I am, not, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And we recognize that with repentance, there should be a change. And for genuine repentance, a change that lasts. And I just want you to notice the dramatic change that has taken place in the son from the beginning of the parable to this point when he repents. At the contrast, what he says, how he talks to his father. Verse 12, Father, give me just incredibly entitled and selfish. Give me the inheritance. Now he wants to come back later and say what? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me or make me one of your hired servants. So he goes from give me to make me. He goes from completely entitled to completely unworthy. He realized he had no claim for any blessing or graciousness from his father upon returning, and he did not have anything to offer his father. He did not come trying to haggle. He, he did not come saying, well, I'm back, and, I'll, and, and if you do this, and I'll do this. He just came and said, I'll spend my, the rest of my life as a servant because of the way that I've lived, because of my rebellion, thinking he had nothing to offer except his service. And it's a great picture of how we should come to the Lord and feel in our relationships with him. William Barclay said, the ordinary slave was in some sense a member of the family, but the hired servant, which was what the son wanted to be, could be dismissed at a day's notice. He was not one of the family at all, and that's what the son came back requesting to be. Now, the reason that I'm stressing that is because we know what's going to happen to the son and that that is not the reception that he's going to receive. But the son did not know that. So he fully expected to return home, not be a son, but be a slave instead, which tells us that his repentance was sincere because if he thought he could go home and return to the position of prominence that he enjoyed before his rebellion then we would have to question what? The genuineness or the sincerity of his repentance. We could wonder if he was simply returning home to enjoy the stature 
or position that he did prior to his rebellion but when we see him willing to go home and just take this position as the lowest servant in the estate we recognize that his sincerity we recognize his sincerity and genuineness and this also shows us something important about repentance that he was willing to accept the consequences of his sin he was willing to accept the consequences of his sin and this brings us to lesson five genuine repentance accepts the consequences of sin genuine repentance do you see how he was willing to accept the consequences of his sin he says i don't i won't be a son any longer just go ahead and make me a slave that's what's due me now let's back up to david's repentance because some of you might have kind of had this nagging thought that i pointed out the brevity of his confession and then he was forgiven david was forgiven but what else incredibly disciplined for his sin second samuel 12 10 god said as a result of david's sin even though david was forgiven the sword is never going to depart from your house because you despised me and have taken the wife of uriah the hittite to be your wife now i'll be honest i used to struggle with as much as i love david nobody in scripture second to christ has ministered to me the way that david had i came here 12 years ago and just wanted to preach on on david through first and second samuel so i love david but honestly i struggled he committed sins that he should have been executed for he should have been executed twice if he could be executed twice should have been executed for the adultery should have been executed for the murder he says i have sinned and then that's it he's forgiven and i almost wonder how could this be this just doesn't seem right lord where's the justice the justice is that his life was so incredibly painful that it might have been a mercy for him to be executed the rest of david's life was so excruciating so much pain and suffering that it actually seems like god's hand was heavier on david by keeping him alive when god said the sword will never depart from your house amnon rapes tamar absalom murders amnon absalom rapes david's wives takes the throne from him then has to be executed by joab and then adonijah takes the throne from david rebels against him and if you don't know these are all children i mentioned with the exception of joab who was david's nephew i'm only mentioning his children and all the horrible things that happened with them and then solomon has to execute adonijah which is happening while david's dying so literally until david's last breath he was experiencing terrible suffering in his home the sword just like god said never departed what suffering in life is worse than the suffering caused by rebellious children is there any i mean i'm not minimizing other suffering but is there anything worse than what parents experience when children rebel i don't know that there is and i don't think i've ever seen people talk about anything that has looked as excruciating as when they have shared with me about a child that is rebelling and that is what david endured multiple times throughout the rest of his life and so my point is this god can still say your sin is taken away you can be forgiven and there can still be terrible 
consequences. Forgiveness does not, and sometimes we have to learn this. I had to learn this early in my Christian life, that forgiveness is, does not mean the absence of consequences. You can lose your temper. You can scream at people. You can feel broken about it, confess your sin, be forgiven, and still damage your reputation. You can get drunk, get pulled over, confess your sin, be forgiven, still lose your license. You can gossip or listen to gossip, and this is important to understand because I've, I've heard people say this. Well, I wasn't really gossiping because I didn't seek these people out. They sought me out and shared this with me. It always takes two people to gossip. It takes one to talk and one to listen. The person listening is not better than the person talking. So if you don't want to gossip or involve in, be involved in gossip, you have to tell people, I, I don't think I should be listening to this. But if you listen, because it's, it's really, you know, you're kind of hungry and it tastes good to sit there and just swallow and consume all this trash that people are sharing with you. But the people that listen are as bad as the people that share it. And so if you don't want to gossip, you can't speak and you can't listen. But if we gossip or listen to gossip, confess our sin and are forgiven, we can still lose friendships. We can fornicate. We can confess our sin, be forgiven, and still end up with a disease. So we need to understand that repentance produces forgiveness, but there's still frequently consequences. And what does this have to do with genuine repentance? Why am I sharing all this with you? Because genuine repentance involves accepting those consequences. If you're genuinely repentant, you have to say, I am sorry and I will receive the discipline that you have for me as a result of the sin that I've committed. To resist or flare up or be stiff-necked against that discipline is, have you ever, you probably, if you have children, you know your children have fallen into two categories regarding discipline. You've had children when you say, put your hands on the counter so that I can spank you. That's what I mean. Put your hands on the counter, put your hand, hands on the table, don't put your hands back who do that and receive, not joyfully, but they accept the, the spanking, the punishment. And then you have other kids, and they're just like, they'll say, I'm sorry, and then as soon as you want to spank them, they're just like stiff neck, they're stubborn, they flare up against you, the excuses begin. Genuine repentance means accepting the consequences or discipline that comes with the sin. Now, up to this point, we have been reading what the son was thinking. Verses 17 to 19 are the son's thoughts. All we have seen is what the son has said to himself. We haven't seen any actions. Is there a world of difference between thinking and acting? <laughs> is there a world of difference between thoughts and actions? And so the question is, is he just going to have a bunch of thoughts, or is he going to have some actions too? Look at the beginning of verse 20. He acted, he arose, and he came to his father. And that's beautiful because when you've been living prodigally or a very debauched lifestyle, you can think about returning many times without returning. You can feel bad frequently about what you're doing and continue in that lifestyle. There's something to be said for the person that thinks and then acts, and the son, to his credit, acted. He went another direction. So we talk about repentance being a, a change in direction, and this is a great example, I mean, of the literal nature of repentance and that the son was going one direction and then went another direction. And this brings us to lesson six. 
Genuine repentance produces a change in direction. Genuine repentance produces a change in direction. He turned from his sin, his prodigal lifestyle, his life out in the Gentile world to his father, back to Jewish territory, but most importantly, as a demonstration of his repentance. I want to illustrate what's behind this lesson by sharing something that I observed in, in other people's lives and I've experienced my, in myself in my own life. And I don't mean through counseling. I just mean I've went through this. I've had this weakness at times. And I use an example from a youth camp that I had taken some young people to early in my ministry as a youth pastor. This youth camp is filled with an amount of preaching, as you'd expect most Christian youth camps would be. And the last night of the youth camp concludes with this very dramatic and emotional altar call that the camp has built up to. And quite a number of young people then move forward or go forward upon this uh, conclusion of this altar call. And this is important. I believe that most, if not all, of those young people who went forward were sincere at that moment. In other words, I believe when they went forward, they were convicted, they wanted to change, they wanted to follow the Lord, which is what the invitation was about. They wanted to stop doing certain things they knew were wrong. They wanted to start doing certain things they knew they should do. But if you fast forward a couple months or weeks, their lives all look the same. And so my point is it's very easy to feel a certain way, think something without changing, without acting on it, without doing anything about it, without actually stopping or changing, which is really to say without actually repenting. In other words, it's easy to be convicted, committed to repenting, but as time goes on, to lose that conviction and fail to repent. I've seen it with others. I can think of times it happened with me. And sometimes we just make excuses for ourselves. Sometimes nobody is going to be able to justify our sin as well as we can. We can do an incredible job justifying our sin. Nobody is going to be able to make as great of a defense for our sinful behavior as we can. I mean, you should listen to me talk to myself sometimes. I can give the greatest reasons for the sinful things I do. I might even be able to convince you it's not sinful if you listen to me long enough. And when that's what we're telling ourselves, can you imagine how difficult it is for lasting repentance to take place when we can so easily talk ourselves out of our conviction or convince ourselves that it wasn't really sinful or it was done for a good reason or it wasn't really that bad? Whatever the case, it's important to recognize that it's very easy to think about repenting without actually repenting. Now, in the prodigal son's life, it was easy to think about returning from the prodigal lifestyle without actually returning, wondering when the famine's going to be over, wondering when he can go back to his life of, of immorality. Spurgeon said, Some of you whom I now address have been thinking and thinking and thinking until I fear that you are going to think yourselves into hell. May you, by divine grace, be turned from thinking to believing, or else your thoughts are going to become the undying worm of your torment. A few months ago, Katie and I were in Texas at a homeschooling conference, and we met this man who was the assistant 
of one of the most prominent or keynote speakers there, or one of the most prominent, or maybe the most prominent speaker there. And this gentleman had come up to our booth a couple times. We enjoyed speaking with him. And he shared with us that he had been a drag queen and that he was a practicing homosexual and that he was actively engaged in actively, I remember him saying that he was actively engaged in the homosexual scene, whatever exactly that means. But then he shared with us that he repented and that God changed his life. He also shared that now he had a wife and he had children. And there, I mean, there are certain things I, I don't know. There are questions that I'd, I'd probably ask him if I had more time with him. I don't know if he still struggles. No, he did say he still struggles. He did say he still struggles with homosexual temptations, but he resists them. But I don't know how often he still struggles with homosexual temptation. I don't know if he would say that God frequently delivers people from homosexual temptation. I don't know if he would say that many people in his situation might have to resist that temptation for the rest of their lives. And I was just having a conversation with someone the other day, and there are different crosses to bear. And I shared with someone, I said, I'm glad that's not a cross that I have to bear. But for some people, the cross is staying in an incredibly difficult marriage. There are some people that you look at, I don't, I don't want to sound harsh, but you look at who they have to spend their lives with, and it must be unbelievably difficult for them, but they stay faithful. They keep loving that wife. They keep respecting that husband. What about people that get a disease? What about people that lose a child? There are very heavy, difficult crosses for people to bear, and for some people, it is resisting the temptation for homosexu- to be homosexual. Perhaps they have to resist it throughout their lives, but I'll tell you what. If you want to love people, you do your best to prevent them from engaging in destructive behavior. The world has no idea what love is. The world has so twisted love that it's become synonymous with tolerant. To the world, the most loving thing you can do is tolerate the worst behavior. But to love people is to discourage them from engaging in destructive behaviors or lifestyles, and few, if any, are more destructive than homosexual lifestyle. So the loving response is to share God's word and discourage that behavior. Now, with all the questions I have... I do know that he was convicted about his homosexuality. He didn't just think about changing, or he didn't stop there. He committed to changing, and then God graciously granted him the repentance to change, helped him change his life, and we were able to meet him at that conference, which was a blessing to Katie and I both, and hear him share this testimony, and then God allows him to travel around the nation with this, you know, uh, prominent speaker uh, helping this person. All that to say repentance has got to be more than just thinking. It's got to be doing. Now, our last lesson, lesson seven, or lesson six. Genuine repentance, lesson six, gives hope. Genuine repentance gives hope. Is this lesson seven? Did I get that wrong? Yeah, thank you. Sorry about that. This is lesson seven. Excuse me. I'm glad it's correct up there. Why are there handcuffs up here? What's this all about? Is this? It's from VBS, right? Okay, thank God. I know we had some criminals around here or something. We had to take plan to take care of this morning. We just hadn't arrested them yet. Is there a criminal in here? And someone just wanted to hear the gospel first, and we're going to arrest them after service. So that's what's going on. Okay. What's that? Did someone say they're the criminal? <laughs> okay. I want to do something. I want to get an elevated view of the few of the verses in this parable. 
I know, I know we move through this slowly, and, and here's, I'll just share this with you. Um, you come to passages that are very familiar to people, and I, I, I'll just let you know my prayers, and you can pray this for me, but every week, I don't know that I can pray much differently than I already do. It's just like, Lord, you know who's going to be there Sunday. You know what's going on in their lives, their marriages, uh, their families, their, with their children, their jobs, their relationships. Basically, I just say, Lord, you know what they need to hear, and I don't. And so please just give me whatever you want to say to them. Help me put it in these notes. And as I pour over these notes and go over it, and I pray, and then I pray when I go over the sermon with Katie, I say, Lord, use Katie to help me to know what to say to your people on Sunday. I only get 50, you know, a little over 50 Sundays with you guys. It's a precious time, and I want to get everything that I can out of it. And so at least I hope you can come on Sundays and be encouraged that my prayer is always that God would say through me to you, what he wants you to hear. And I never tire of praying that, and I never tire of digging into God's word to uh, hopefully have the truths revealed to me that he wants uh, revealed to you. But I know we, and so I know we go through these verses slowly, and so sometimes there's something as we're digging out what I hope God wants you to, to, to be able to see. Because, I mean, if I say, give me, by a show of hands, who doesn't know this parable? Everyone knows it. If I say, even if I said, by a show of hands, who doesn't think they've read this 100 times in their lives, you know? We've all read this so many times, probably heard other sermons on it. So it, I'm like, Lord, well, you know what they need to hear, so just give that to me to, to give to them. And, but as we go slowly, sometimes there's something that I think a little elevated view can help us see. And I saw something that was very encouraging to me that I hope can be encouraging to you, or I hope that God gave me to give to you. But we've got to get an elevated view. So look with me at verse 15. He, go, he, went, he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, just for a moment, I want you to think about how he was feeling. And how do you think he was feeling? He's in Gentile lands. This is anathema to him. He's a Jewish boy that has grown up in a godly home, finding himself in Gentile territory, feeding pigs. There could be nothing worse, nothing more despicable, following the immorality that he's engaged in. How do you believe he's feeling at this moment? I can't imagine the hopelessness. I don't know that there could be a more depressing situation for someone to find themselves in than this son finds himself in now because of what he knows he's abandoned. He didn't grow up as a Gentile. He didn't grow up in the dark. He's been hearing God's word for his whole life. And so I just cannot imagine how hopeless he's feeling. Couldn't be feeling any worse. With that in mind, look at verses 17 through 19. He comes to himself and he says, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I'm perishing here with hunger. I am going to arise and I am going to go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And I read this verse, or I don't know know how many times I've read these verses, and every time they encourage me, it is refreshing because I imagine the hope that he began experiencing when he thought about returning to his father. I just imagine the hope that probably washed over him as he considered repenting 
in bringing an end to his sin and to this lifestyle that has been plaguing him and going back home. And I can hear the hope in his voice. I can almost feel it as I read these verses. He goes from utter hopelessness to great hopefulness. And what's my point? My point is that repentance should do the same for us. Repentance can be incredibly difficult, but it can bring such hope. And I want to conclude with that. Repentance is hard, but imagine the hope that comes from thinking about that sin ending. That sin that has caused much suffering and and heartbreak as we talked about last week, that sin is that, that has been plaguing us, hurting, hurting our marriage or hurting our relationship with our parents or our relationship with our children or our relationship with our friends, sin that has ruined these relationships, sin that's caused all this guilt and shame. I, I mean, who can be in sin and want to read the Bible? Whoever says, I'm in sin, I want to pray. Who says, I'm in sin, I want to go to church? People in sin can choose to do those things, but they don't want to because the guilt and the shame is so heavy. You're so convicted, you want to turn your face from God. You don't want to look up at him. And so you don't want to turn to the word. You don't want to pray. You don't want to go to church and see other Christians and have the heavy conviction bearing down on you. And so the thought of repentance is the thought of that guilt and shame coming to an end. It's the thought of that separation or distance from God coming to an end. How terrible is it when you're in sin and you just feel separated from God? You feel distant from him. You don't feel right or good in your relationship with him. But what can change that? Repentance. Suddenly that gap can be closed. You can go back to the Lord in prayer. You can look at the scriptures without conviction. You can go see your church family. You don't have to wonder what people think about you or know about you. Repentance brings all of these terrible things to an end. And so how much hope should that give us? Struggling with something for years, but turning from it to God should be one of the most hopeful things we can imagine. And to encourage you a little bit more, so we finally, we've made about halfway through this parable. There's three people to look at. We're finishing the first one. There's two more people to look at, the father and then the other son. But just to give you a little glimpse and to be thinking about the next person to look at, when we want to repent, we have a heavenly Father who wants to receive us in our repentance as joyfully as the Father in this parable wanted to receive his Son. I will be up front after service. If you have any questions about anything I've shared, or I can pray for you in any way. It would be a privilege for me to speak with you. Father, I thank you for repentance. It isn't something that you would ever have to allow. We could just be stuck in our sins without your grace to deliver us. But what a blessing it is to know, Lord, that with the gospel at work in our lives when we're convicted, that you will, when we turn to you and desire genuine victory, grant us repentance. It's not to say that we won't ever continue to, to struggle or find ourselves at the end of Romans 1, 7 saying, you know, I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. But knowing that we have victory through Christ and that he can deliver us from this, what hope we should have from that, knowing that we don't have to be plagued by these sins for the rest of our earthly lives, Lord. And so I thank you so much for that. I pray for the hope that it should give us, that it would be evident to, to each of us here. I pray for a wonderful week at camp, Lord. I just offer this up 
on the congregation's behalf, knowing that we'll be out there together, that it can be a wonderful time, that you keep us safe, bless our fellowship with each other, most importantly with you. Pray for Pastor Nathan as he delivers the teachings each night. Thank you for this time, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.